<clears throat> well, good stuff. Turn to Daniel chapter 8, and uh, as we continue, uh, one pastor has called Daniel chapter 8 the nightmare for the pastor. Oh, none of you. It doesn't resonate with any of you. What's that? Somebody's telling me, what's that? Uh, the night, a nightmare for the pastor. And I, I know what they mean. This is very difficult. So you're gonna, I'm going to need your cooperation today. So if you uh, do or don't like history, well, today you're going to just hopefully like it. Okay? Because when you understand the extra-biblical history that takes place in conjunction with Daniel 8, uh, you're going to get goosebumps. Uh, you're going to go, you know how the pastor always says God rules the nations and sets up uh, kingdoms and tears down kingdoms uh, as he chooses, etc. Well, Daniel chapter 8 is where you really see it. So, uh, we uh, are uh, traveling through Daniel, and uh, one of the things that you're going to see today, here's a little youth group trick, or trick, or um, not trick, uh, what am I trying to say? Anyway, this is what we used to do in youth group. I want you to go to the page in the Old Testament that's the end of it called Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, and I, I have a little page in there like this, it says New Testament, you probably have the same. And so I want you to get there in your Bible and just sort of hold it up in your heart or hold it up, and I want you to know something. Between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years. There's a 400 year span, and God, in a sense, didn't speak during that time through his prophets, etc. And then God spoke loudly <laughs> when he sent his son Jesus. Uh, to Bethlehem, right? So there's a 400, we always used to, you know, hey, just dangle that one page out there. Uh, yeah, what, what about it? That represents 400 years. And the reason I'm telling you that is today we're going to learn lots about things that happened in that 400-year gap, in that 400-year gap, okay? Uh, so you're going to have to really pay attention uh, if you have a pencil or a pen and you want to jot a few of these things down, well, it'll help you in your studies as you go back. Now remember, Daniel is a book and a person. It's written in the 500s BC. Everybody raise your hand if you just heard me. 500s BC. Christ came, I know there's going to be somebody who tells me he didn't, but around zero, okay? So I just trying to orient us. And then he lived to about 32, 33 AD. Everybody with me? And this book happens in the 500s BC. So guess how much before Christ? Around 500 years. Everybody with me? Okay, and Daniel is one of the men or young men who was taken up to Babylon. Do you remember that? He was exiled to Babylon, and he was a prophet in the highest of places in Babylon. And he was able to, to interpret dreams and have power in his life and be a very wise man. And he uh, was in the courts 
of the politicians, and he was in the high places, socially, economically, whatever, up there ministering to people. Amazing. At the same time, this is truly fascinating to me, Ezekiel is out with the common people who are Jewish exiles in Babylon. So you have Daniel in the political upper crust courts. You have Ezekiel with the people who are in Babylon, ministering to them. And oh, by the way, there were some Jewish people who were left in the areas of Judah. And guess what? God covered them too. He, he had Jeremiah stay there. So God cares for his people. It's amazing to me. That's one of the touching things about learning about the prophets for me. Anyway, Daniel here in 500, we uh, get biographical information in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2 through chapter 7, it switches from Hebrew to the Aramaic. Because that's what the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, spoke. And he gives this literary chiastic structure. Chapter 2 matches up with chapter 7. Chapter 3 matches up with chapter 6. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, sort of the same thing. And what happened in chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, Daniel tells him what the dream was and explains the dream. And in that dream, uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Babylon's going to go away. He sees it in, a, in a, a statute, an image that has different metals, four different metals, and then some toes. And Babylon's going to go away, and they're going to be overtaken by the Medes and Persians. This is important. Write it down. Who's going to be overtaken by Greeks. Who's going to be overtaken by Rome. That happens in chapter 2. And then uh, in chapter 3, in chapter 3, uh, Daniel and his uh, friends uh, get promoted. Uh, they're... Uh, you know, high up, and there's uh, this thing where Nebuchadnezzar hears the dream interpretation and then says, I'm going to thumb my nose at God. You tell me that I'm represented by gold in that uh, dream? Okay, I'm going to make a massive image of all gold saying to people that my kingdom will never go away. And we know how that works out uh, if you've been traveling with us. And then in chapter for God humbles Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and that humiliation works, and Nebuchadnezzar repents. And in chapter 5, we see a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, a guy named Belshazzar, king of Babylon. He gets humbled. Okay, just stick with me. Then we get over uh, to chapter 6. Chapter 6. And Daniel gets stuck in the lion's den. Now, in chapter 3, his friends, his friends got stuck in the fiery furnace. So it sort of matches up. Everybody uh, just hang in. And last week, we saw a vision of the four beasts, which match up with chapter 2, which was that statute image that had the different metals. And the four beasts, again, watch. Babylon, Medo-Persia, <laughs> Greece, and Rome. And in the last chapter, we also were introduced to a little horn. Chapter 7, a little horn. And that's really important for today's story. It grew out of the feet and toes of the image 
uh, in chapter 2, and uh, uh, here uh, in chapter uh, 7, it grows out of some, some other ten horns. But what that little horn is talking about, and we discussed it last week, is the coming Antichrist who's going to appear at the beginning of the tribulation, have an impact in the tribulation. Okay, ready? This is interesting. The Antichrist is talked about in chapter 7, but watch this. The Antichrist is also talked about in chapter 9. In bet- we'll get to that next week. Into, uh, in between those two chapters, you have Daniel chapter 8. Because you sort of scratch your head and go, okay, well, why is this in here? And we're hoping to explain it to you. So I'm just going to read about the first seven or eight verses, and then we'll get into it. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, now time out. (laughs) I get to about four words, and I got to call a time out. You got to know the players. If you don't know the players in Daniel you'll be incredibly lost because Daniel's not in chronological order. And so now he's telling you in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Remember, in the chronological story of Daniel, we've seen uh, Babylon be ruling with King Nebuchadnezzar and a descendant called Belshazzar. And then we saw that The Medes and the Persians came in and in one night with the handwriting on the wall wiped out the Babylonians. Remember that? But we're not going in chronological order. So this is telling us that during the reign of the Babylonians, you need to know that. During the reign of the Babylonians, that's important. And the reason that's important, and the reason you should pay attention to that, and I should pay attention to this, is when people get done, the critics of the Bible, when the critics of the Bible get done reading Daniel, see, they understand extra biblical history, the critics of the Bible do, and they go, oh man, we can't quibble with the fact that Daniel appropriately and precisely predicted history. They can't argue that. But you know what they can do? They try to switch the dates. That's what the critics of the Bible do. Here's what they do. They say, oh, no, Daniel wasn't written in the 500s. No way. How could Daniel be written in the 500s? It perfectly predicts what happened in history. These are critics that say this. What we think is that uh, Daniel was written during the Maccabean period, which we're going to talk about here today, which was in the 170s to 150s BC. So what they say is, critics of the Bible say, yes, Daniel got it right on. But the problem is, they wrote it after the events. Everybody with me? So it's important that you know, well, what do you mean they wrote it after the events? Uh, These things were happening during the time of the Babylon or Babylonians. So here you go. You're in the third year of King Belshazzar. He's the one that was taken away by the Medes and the Persians. So he hasn't been taken away yet. And there is a vision that happens to Daniel. Remember that visions mostly before chapter 7 were to other people and Daniel was coming and interpreting them. Everybody with me? But now it happens again to Daniel. 
Daniel is having a vision after the one that appeared to me the first time. Now in this vision, here's what he saw. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan. That is east of the Babylonian capital. And that's Shushan is the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. Now tie the Bible together. I want you to tie the Bible together here. Other things in the Bible happened in Shushan, one of your favorite books. Almost took place exclusively in Shushan, Esther. The book of Esther happened in Shushan, or most of it. And also, Nehemiah, when he was coming back to help build the city of Jerusalem, remember, Nehemiah wrote a book in conjunction with the other book, Ezra. Nehemiah was commissioned from guess what city? Shushan. So we're trying to tie it all together. Got it? All right. So... Here he is, he's, he's in Shushan, he must have been on a business trip. I bet Daniel was, he was high up, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing behind the river was, was a ram. What is with all these visions? Here's a ram which had two horns, two horns. Uh, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. All right, so you see a ram, two horns, one, uh, one was higher than the other one, and the higher one came up last. Okay, look in verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's important. It was as if he was running, but running so fast he was flying. Get it? And uh, the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to, uh, uh, to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Okay, let's stop right there. Now, thankfully, I don't have to be smart enough to figure out who the ram and the goat is. All I have to do is keep reading. And so do you. Because when you get down to about... Verse 20, the ram which you saw, there, let me get there, okay, uh, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Wow, praise you, Lord. Because I don't have to go around and do a whole bunch of searching and uh, thinking, all I have to do is keep reading. So here's what's interesting. Look, look at this. In chapter 2 and chapter 7, 
Everybody with me? In chapter 2 and chapter 7, we have four kingdoms that we're dealing with. Remember them? Babylon, Medo-Persia kingdom. We have the Greece king, or Greek kingdom, and then we have Rome. Same thing in chapter 7, two different visions. But now, for some reason, and I think I know the reason, God's picking out the middle two. Are you catching it? He's picking out the Medo-Persian kingdom, and he's picking out the Greek kingdom. So you and I need to study history to sort of determine why. Now remember, there's a little horn in chapter 7, and there's a, going to be and is a little horn. Look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 8. Out of one of them came a little horn out of one of what? Uh, out of four notable uh, ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them came a little horn. So you have a little horn that grows exceedingly in chapter 8. Just stick with me. And a little horn in chapter 7. The little horn in chapter 7, we said, pointed to Antichrist, the one who's going to come in the tribulation. But we need to find out who the little horn is of chapter 8. Okay? You with me? Well, when you look back here, what's remarkable about this prophecy, when was it written? What hundreds BC? What hundreds? Five. It's written in 500 BC, and it's talking about kingdoms that are in the future for Daniel. You see it? They're in the past for us, but they're in the future for Daniel. And you're talking now the kingdoms that lasted from 500 into the 300s. Now watch this. And then Greece doesn't really come until like the 100s. Are you getting that? So it's predictive prophecy. And when you study history, you go, oh boy, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. You get goosebumps. Because what God predicted in Daniel chapter 8 is exactly what happened? What did happen? Well, look back here. We know then that the ram is Medo-Persia, the second kingdom that we're dealing with in Daniel so far in 2 through 8. There was a ram which had two horns. Look, I'm not really too smart, but when he's saying Medo-Persian kingdom, that's two. One was the Medes, one was the Persians. And when they first got together, watch this, the Medes were sort of in control. But the Persians overtook the, Med uh, the Medes in importance and strength, politics, etc. And they became the very dominant of the two. And you could read that and study about that. Uh, because the two horns were high, but watch this. But one was higher. That means prestige, influence. One became higher uh, than the other, and the higher one came up last. And that's exactly what happened. Medes first, in charge, Medo-Persian kingdom, and the Persian kingdom sort of overtakes. Secondly, in time, you're all looking at me with a glazed look. But I want you to keep just hanging in there for a minute. Because what happened then is you see that... Uh, uh, they, uh, with the, excuse me, the goat comes, here comes a goat, and you saw it, he saw him confronting the ram, verse 7. He was moved with rage against him and attacked the ram and broke his two horns. Broke his two horns. So there's this goat from Greece, by the way, 
I don't think it means greatest of all time, like you and I think of it, but it sort of does mean greatest of all time. Because if you know who was leading Greece at the time, you go, whoa, hold on. And we talked about him last week. There's a guy named Alexander the Great. And he had unbelievable abilities. When he was a little kid, his dad would buy him the wildest horses around. And for some reason, somehow, he could break them. He, the, 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 the great people, equestrian people of the city couldn't do it, but he could. There was just something about him. He could, you ever known those people? They had hard things to do and they could just do it and tackle it. And he became a very young ruler of his country's, well, ruler of the country, but then uh, his military was unbelievably mighty. And it says here, it attacked the ram and broke his two horns. So we have Greece with Alexander the Great attacking the Medo-Persians. And that's exactly what happened. I might even have a picture of, let's see if I do, of uh, Alexander the Great's conquests. Okay, that's the second one. I think I sent you one earlier. If you don't have it, just yell out and, okay. Anyway, look what, I wanna just show you this. Look where Greece is, okay? See where Greece is? Okay, Greece came from the west. The goat came from the west, and it took all of that area. I'll tell you why it's broken up into the fours uh, uh, in a minute. You see that area right there where Israel is, and right above it at the top is Syria, right there on the coast. That's important for this story. Well, Alexander the Great, by the time he's 32, he's living over here in the Babylonian areas, and he's scratching his head. I mean, he had plans to go and uh, attack Rome, but he was crying and scratching his head and really sort of sad because he was so young and he'd conquered so much and he just didn't know where to go to conquer more. He had, with lightning speed, he came out of the West. But you just keep reading. He attacked the ram. Uh, firstly, the Medo-Persians broke his two horns uh, Medo-Persians, then there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Are you getting me? There's Greece, there's Alexander the Great, and therefore the male goat grew very great. Isn't that funny? Now, remember last week I was telling you as he was uh, 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 conquering his empire, he tried to get down to Egypt. And he sent word that he was coming through Israel, Jerusalem. And remember, the high priest ran out to Alexander the Great. And he showed him the prophecies in Daniel chapter 7, I mean, excuse me, in Daniel chapter 8. And what's funny is, now think about this with me. I'll bet you he, the guy, the, the high priest, this is just my speculation, covered up the next lines because Greece is gonna go out of favor. But Alexander the Great, he was blown away by it. He couldn't believe that he was in the Bible and his country was in the Bible. And the high priest was sharing this with him and Alexander the Great actually bowed down to the Jewish high priest, which there's no record of Alexander the Great ever bowing to anybody. And some say, and you could look this up, some say that he was allowed into the sanctuary to worship, I don't know about, or into the temple areas to worship, I don't know about that. But he was blown away by this prophecy. 
Well, he gets and goes, and he's moving from the west, and the male goat grows very great, but when he becomes strong, listen to this, the large, large horn was broken. When Alexander the Great is over here in the Babylonian areas, watch this, for... He, he dies. He dies at an early age. He dies when he's around 32, 33 uh, years old. Some people believe that he threw another party. We see parties in the book of Daniel. And it was a sort of a drunken party, and he was out walking, and he caught a cold and got pneumonia and died. Other people believe he died from malaria. It's sort of mysterious why he, why he died. But he was on his deathbed, and they were asking him, who should I give the kingdom to, or who should you give the kingdom to? And Alexander the Great, in his sort of weird way, said, you should give it to the strongest. And then he died. So about 20 years later, they're still fighting. Alexander the Great's people are still fighting over this area. And one general is assigned to the areas. Cassander to the Grecian area. Lysimachus to Asia Minor. Now this is really important. Seleucus or if you say it a different way, I get it. But that's how I'm going to say it. He's, he's assigned from all the way over to the top of Syria and in Syria, all the way out there through Babylon, etc. Everybody with me? And one more general, Ptolemy, not Ptolemy, you say it, Ptolemy, he gets the Egypt area. Now, there's this male goat who grows very great. Uh, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up. Isn't that fascinating? So here you have Alexander the Great, the strong one. Uh, his large horn was broken, and in his place came four notable ones. Look, four generals. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Here. You have it uh, established over here. They tried to make inroads down here toward the south and toward the east. And the glorious land is an indication that they were attempting to go towards Jerusalem. Everybody with me? So here's where we are. I'm going to recap it for you. Now we're seeing in our history, we're seeing through the Grecian Empire, it being split into four. This is all extra biblical history that matches up with Daniel 8. But we now need to focus on this empire, the Seleucid Empire. Why? Because several people after this general, several descendants after this general, there's a guy called, and people uh, say it differently, so if you say it differently, good, good. I mean, we'll say it differently. But anyway, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, look, you go, Antiochus Epiphanes, what a name. Well, he was assigned over to the area of Syria. And what's in Syria? Antioch. And where's Antioch? It's right above Israel. And what's right below it? Jerusalem, going downward. You get it? So you have this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, by all accounts is who we're talking about with respect to this little horn. Antiochus Epiphanes, 
uh, ruled and reigned from about the middle of the 170s BC to about the of the middle of the 160s BC. Okay, so out of one of them, Seleucia, came a little horn, Antiochus Epiphany, a ruler, a king who ruled over this area. And look what this sort of goes on to tell us. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. That's sort of a head scratcher, but hang on with me. If you look in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, God's people are actually called the host of heaven. Remember the star, uh, story with Abraham and uh, God's telling him to, you know, to look up in the heavens to see the stars? That's as many as your people are going to be. And so several times God's people in the Old Testament are called the host or the stars. So something about this little horn, who we think is Antiochus Epiphanes, has a beef, has an antagonism towards the people of God. And who were the people of God at the time? And, and are? Who are the people of God? The Jewish people, you see. You get that? So he had something against them. And he was also exalting himself as high as the prince of the host. He exalted himself as high as God. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Now, think about his name. Here's a ruler from Seleucia, from the Greeks... I got some of us, you know, going like this with our head, like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I don't blame you. But anyway, if you'll stick there, man, this is unbelievable. So you have him, he's set up here, and he uh, is, has some sort of antagonism towards the Jewish people. Not just an antagonism, he has a hatred for the Jewish people. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he sets himself up as high as God does. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Look at this in verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. Now look, people of the Bible who study history are blown away by these particulars. Here's what Antiochus Epiphanes did. When he, he had this hatred for the Jews, a real hatred. And so he came down into the Jerusalem area, and some people have estimated during that time frame, from the mid-170s to the mid-160s, he murdered approximately, all told over that period, 100,000 Jewish people. And one of the things that he did was he went in and he wanted to destroy the Jewish religion. So he made it a law that you couldn't practice the Sabbath. Do you know how important the Sabbath was and is to a Jewish person? Right? He couldn't practice the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, he stopped the sacrifices. He stopped the sacrifices. And not only did he stop the sacrifices... Check in right here if you're bored right now. Check in right here. He actually did something totally blasphemous. <clears throat> he took a pig and he slaughtered it on the altar in the temple area and let the blood run all over the altar. And then he took lots of the blood and he smeared it around the temple. You understand, right? To a Jewish person, obviously it's awful in itself, but to a Jewish person, a pig is an unclean animal. Right? You get that. Uh, what are some of the 
other things he did? Well, he was just a downright evil murdering guy. Look, his name, I'm stationed in Antioch and I'm an epiphany. You ever thought about that? I'm an epiphany. I'm a manifestation of deity. In fact, sometimes he would change his name to Thanos or Thenos, meaning I'm Antiochus, God himself. Uh, the Jewish people had a different name for him, and really what the name meant was madman. He was deranged and was a madman. And he did lots of things. He actually even took and made an image of Zeus, the Greek god. Anybody ever heard of Zeus? Hey, put that coin up there, would you please? Here's a picture of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and on the back of the coin is the image of Zeus, and some say what he's holding in his hand is the god of Nike, which... you. You ever heard of Nike? Yeah, okay, I didn't know if you had. But anyway, and that means victory, victory. And so he was really into the Greek gods. There's a real, real money. Uh, I think you can find that in the British Museum now. Anyway, uh, he, he um, oh, where was I? I just lost my train of thought. Oh, yes. So here's what he does. He makes an image of Zeus, and he takes Zeus, and he sets it up on a throne... In, um, in the temple area, uh, in a place of where many would think, you know, only the Lord should be. And he asked people to worship Zeus. And oh, by the way, he made it clear in his edicts that he was as if, it was as if you were worshiping me if you were worshiping Zeus, not me, Antiochus Epiphanes. You get it? And so there was this image on the altar, but it was backed by this evil, this evil person. That's going to be important for our story here in a minute. Well, one day, do you know this? One day, um, Antiochus Epiphanes makes this edict, and he says, I'm going to send representatives out into the surrounding areas, and I'm going to make the people out in the countryside, grassroots, right, worship me and do worship things and not, uh, not uh, sacrifice. In fact, I'm going to ask them then to come and sacrifice to me out in the areas. And uh, there was this one place, several, not, not very far from Jerusalem, and there was a man there named Metathias. Now you just gotta hang on because I guarantee you this all comes together. And there was this man named Metathias and he was from the priestly uh, line of, of, of the people of Israel, okay? And he really chafed at anybody doing this uh, to his religious uh, system or to his, you know, his brothers and sisters. Now watch. Mattathias had five sons. You know one of them. His name was Judas Maccabees. You can read all about this, by the way, in First and Second Maccabees. Or you could go uh, to... Um, Josephus's works, he has it in there as well. But in First and Second Maccabees, which is not an inspired work, but it gives us a lot of factual history, we see that Judas Maccabees, uh, or excuse me, Mattathias stands up with his sons, and when one guy comes to worship uh, in his town, some people say the family has him killed. The guy who was going against the Jewish religion, one of his brothers. Other people say he hired somebody to do it. But nevertheless, look what happened. Now he knows he's in trouble. Mattathias and his family, who are Orthodox Jews, stand up for God, have committed this crime against 
Antiochus Epiphanes, and guess what? They flee to the mountains. Now, you guys should know this story, and here's why. And over a period of two or three years, they perform guerrilla warfare against this Seleucian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and his forces. And after two or three years, guess what happens? He runs them out of, or they run them out of Jerusalem, and it was really under the hand of Judas Maccabees. Now, all Maccabees means is hammer. It's not a name of a family. It means hammer. So the Maccabees and their guerrilla revolt, they come in and guess what they do? Gosh, it's right here in Daniel 8. Guess what they do? They go right into the temple and look in verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And in comes Judas Maccabees and the Maccabean people. And guess what they do? They clean up the blood and restore the temple so that it could be used. And you know the story because the Jewish people celebrate at Christmas time this festival still. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes out of all of this. And here's what happened. You know it. Uh, they went to look for some oil in the temple so that they could light the lamps. And they needed eight days to cleanse the temple, the cleansing of the temple. But they only had enough oil for one day. But they prayed and they just trusted the Lord and somehow, someway, Lord made it last for eight days. And so guess what happens at Hanukkah now? For eight days, they celebrate a thing called Hanukkah or another name for their festival is the Festival of Lights. Got it? So you see it. Look, I didn't read this, but then I heard verse 13, a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? Now, by the way, this is speaking of this transgression or of desolation. Jesus actually refers to this uh, uh, stuff that's happening in Matthew 24 and calls it the abomination of desolation. It's when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes establishes himself in the temple. How long is this going to last? The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you about one thing. Guess what else Antiochus Epiphanes did? He burned the Torahs. Anywhere he could find Torahs, he burnt them. Go back up to verse... Uh, he cast truth down to the ground. He burnt the Torahs and he told the people in the countryside, if you find Torahs, I'm requiring you to burn them too. So you have all of this coming to fruition. And how long? I mean, Daniel's asking, the people are asking, the holy ones are asking, how long will this vision be concerning these all this thing that's happening in this desecration? And he said to me, watch this, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, we know when the sanctuary was cleansed. It was December 25th, 165 BC. But I won't get into this with you too much, but everybody who has a, has a voice in the commentary world debates what that 2,300 means. It actually led uh, to a group uh, that got into some weird stuff and still is into some weird stuff. It's kind of the basis for the Seventh-day Adventist group 
because they took this to mean 2300 years and they set a date when Christ was going to return 1844 didn't happen so they kept setting the date over and over and over and over but we won't talk about that wink wink what we're going to say is uh, what does 2300 days mean well it might be just literal days because if you count backwards from 165 BC you get to the year 171 BC when sort of Antiochus Epiphanes started really entrenched in doing his deed or his deeds and other people believe because the language really says here for 2300 mornings and evenings that's how it reads in the Hebrew that it's half of 2300 which would then match the date or the months that Antiochus Epiphanes actually desecrated the temple. You're like, why are you telling me that? Well, I just want you to know, whichever it is, they can pinpoint the day in which the temple was cleansed, and that's the basis for Hanukkah. All right, we're getting to a point for you New Testament Christians. I promise. Well, look at this. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. Daniel's like you are right now, all the way back in 500 BC. He was scratching his head like, what in the world is all this about? Sort of what you're saying right now. And I'm trying to help you with that. But he's saying it, and, 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 and I empathize with you. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which he called, and said, Gabriel, here we go, a picture of Gabriel, the angel, make this man understand the vision. So he came nearer where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. Now, the Bible tells us that angels are ministering spirits, and here he's trying to help him understand everything he's seen. But anyway, David was afraid and passed out and did a face plant, fell on his face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now this, I finally got you here. Check back in. This is the, uh, really important. Because how you see this is how you're going to see who that horn is. That little horn of chapter 8. What does it mean that the vision refers to the time of the end? Well, we know, don't you know? Would you know? that when Antiochus Epiphanes went off the scene, the end of the world didn't happen. Would you agree with me? So the end is future. Which means, watch, this is the important part. Daniel chapter 8 is sandwiched between Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9, both speaking of the Antichrist. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything in the Old Testament, it really happened. It was real history, but it's given as a type and shadow of the reality of what's to come. Everybody with me? Which means there's a near fulfillment of a little horn and a far fulfillment. So what Daniel was seeing was our, my map or our map. It breaking up into fours after a little horn came, right? 
And then it break, or excuse me, out of, out of, uh, out of the fours, out of the Seleucid uh, a line came a little horn, right? And Daniel saw that. And he knew, at least as much as he could knew, that some kingdom was coming. We know on the backside of that that it was Antiochus Epiphanes. With me? But when you look at Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a real guy, you're seeing a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist is going to do and be. That's the whole point of this chapter. So we know from the other places in the Bible, excuse me, Thessalonians chapter 2, the book of Revelation, we can get more information about the Antichrist, but here's where you get your base knowledge. Tracking with me? And here's what the base knowledge is. We're going to learn it here in a second. The vision refers to the time of the end. The near fulfillment was Antiochus Epiphanes. The far fulfillment is going to be the Antichrist. As he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. What's that? That's the period of tribulation, seven-year period. Let me give you a quick thumbnail sketch of prophecy. We're in the church age since the book of Acts. We're in the church age, the era of grace. Nothing has to be fulfilled for the Lord to come back in the clouds to catch us up. That's called the rapture. At that time, the Antichrist, some unknown person, is going to rise out of a ten-nation confederation, revived Roman Empire, and sort of make peace in the Middle East. And what's weird about that and strange about that is he actually hates the Jewish people. And he's going to do a number on them. And for seven years, God's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world in a seven-year period called the Tribulation, or here, it's called that period of indignation, the latter time of indignation. In the middle of that three-and-a-half-year period, the Antichrist is going to come. Does it sound familiar? And he's going to set up an image of himself on the throne in the temple and say, worship me. And if you don't, clunk, If you're found in Christ, praise the Lord. You'll be in heaven, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. If you're not found in Christ, you'll continue into the tribulation period, and you're going to go through the things that are set forth in Revelation 6 through 19. At the end, or excuse me, at the second half of the seven-year period, the great tribulation is going to happen, seals and judgments and all this sort of thing. Then at the end of the tribulation period, watch this, Revelation 19, the Bible says that Jesus is going to come back with us. And he's going to rule and reign for 1,000 years in Jerusalem with us. At the end of that time, he's going to release Satan. We'll talk about that some other time. And then he's going to put uh, Satan and unbelievers into the bottomless pit. This earth is going to pass away, and we're going to receive a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. That's all of prophecy. But the point I'm telling you is, he's talking here about that seven-year period. And in that period, he says, this is going to happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having two horns, 
king Medo Persia. Male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall ride out of that nation, but not with its power. In other words, these four that I showed you up here aren't going to be as powerful as Alexander the Great. You're like, oh, okay. What have you just told me? Watch this. Do you see how your Bible sort of goes into poetry form right here? Watch this. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. (laughs) I believe that's speaking both of the near fulfillment of Antiochus Epiphanes and also the Antichrist. You're seeing both the near fulfillment in these passages and the far fulfillment all at the same time. Watch this. And then after all this listening, we're going to bring it around to you. When the transgression have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. What will that king be? Just like Antiochus Epiphanes, he's going to be brutal. He's going to have fierce features who understand sinister schemes. Now, this is another place the critics go, oh, what do I do with that? I'm not going to tell you the story, but if you knew how Antiochus Epiphanes ascended to the throne, you'd go, hmm, sinister schemes. Took out a nephew, killed a brother, the whole thing. Was playing the political game. He is very sinister and has schemes. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Folks, listen right here. Antiochus Epiphanes was doing these things and he was being powered by the enemy of our souls, that's Satan. When you read the book of Revelation, it clearly tells you that the Antichrist will be doing these things, but the power behind it is the enemy, Satan. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He's going to destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. That's what's going to happen. He's going to come on the scene. He's going to settle this uh, Middle East peace crisis. And everybody's going to, he's going to be on the cover of Time and CNN. And everybody's going to be hailing him as this unbelievable leader. And he shall destroy the mighty. But watch this. This is really somber but he's also going to destroy the holy people, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's the thing. This was just a foreshadowing of what's coming during the tribulation period with respect to the the people of Israel, the Jews. Well, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. That's, by the way, what Satan did. This worship leader named Lucifer in Ezekiel, right? And he props himself up and is kicked out of heaven. Well, this leader, both in the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment, will exalt himself in his heart. He'll destroy many in their prosperity and peace, and he shall even rise against the prince of princes. He's going to try stupidly in the battle of Armageddon to get at Jesus. but he shall be broken without human means. Antiochus Epiphanes, he died of just, uh, uh, no one really knows, just a disease. He just sort of got sick and died. 
the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon, Jesus is just going to speak the word and woof, gone. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up this vision, or up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. It didn't take place at the time of Daniel. There's a far fulfillment as well. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days afterwards. I arose, watch this, and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Okay, now watch, watch this. Most of you are going, what, what, is, what is he doing? This is Christmas time. Can you give me some sheep in the manger? But here's the thing. We're in the season of talking and thinking about the first advent, but there's something very real coming. It's called the second advent, when Jesus comes back. We're used to him being the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. But when he comes back, he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords and coming in judgment. And when you read this, you go, come on, I don't know if I understand it. I don't even, the pastor did a terrible job today, and you're probably right. But here's the point. So was Daniel. He wasn't surely, or fully sure of all this stuff. Do you notice that? I was sort of like, I knew this was something rough. I didn't quite get it. I had to ask a couple people along the way, and I didn't quite get it. I'm just going to close it up because I've been told that because it's going to happen in the future. By the way, in the New Testament, Revelation 13 says the time is near. Revolution 22.10 says the book will be unsealed. But here, Daniel is sort of sick, confused. You're probably a little sick, confused after that sermon. But Daniel did something that was very wise. He felt faint, sick, but you know what the Lord, as he's praying about it, says to him, get up, if you don't understand everything, and go about the king's business. I know you're not going to get it all. You don't have it all down pat. You're not God. I am God's saying. But go about the king's business. And you know what's great? You don't have to wonder what the king's business is. Turn with me over to Acts 2.42. I always say this. <laughs> we had a visitor once that didn't like me saying this. But I'm going to say it again. You don't need to spend money on a church marketing study. I mean, it's a waste of money. I'm just being honest with you. You don't need church marketing. Because the Lord tells you what to be about. <laughs> he told the early church, and it hasn't changed for us. Here's what the Lord says. Look in verse 42, as the vital church, as the church of the God grows. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Keep learning the word of God. Keep taking it in. But don't just be a 
taker inner, be an obeyer. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you obey what you know. You are being transformed by the renewing of your mind, but don't be on the shelf. So learn, uh, Acts 2.42 tells us, continue in it steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Keep in the word. And then keep in fellowship. Oh, man. That means come upstairs. I'll be in trouble for that one. <laughs> that means come to church. It's not because I can pat myself on the back and say, look at all these people. No, you come to church to sharpen one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, talk about the, what the Lord's teaching you, bless one another, pray for one another, bear each other's burdens. How can you do it when you're not together? You, you fellowship, and you don't just fellowship, you know, like about football or something. You fellowship in the Lord about what the Lord is doing. Man, we had this amazing men's study yesterday. Amazing. Talking about the love of Jonathan and David for one another and being friends and how God uses that to further his mission of growing people into Christ-likeness and bringing people into the kingdom of God fellowship. It's tough to do when you're a lone ranger. So you continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. Of course, come together and eat, but I think it's also talking about uh, communion and taking communion together, of course. And then in prayers. Let's be a body of believers that really believes in prayer, not just lip services prayer. Let's be a body of believers. Here's what I'm praying for, that your devotional life just takes off privately. But also, I pray this at the prayer thing and so do the other prayer people at the corporate prayer thing on Sunday nights, that we have more people at the prayer times than we do at the sermons and the worship days. Because that's where you fellowship with the Lord and you receive from the Lord and you get to pray for people. And so what are we to be about? We're to be about that. We're to be about continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. What else are we to be about? Go and making disciples, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go into all the nations and do that and watch this. This is so great. As you read that, and you just keep going down. Look in verse 7, uh, 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And this is the part. Watch this. You don't need a church marketing study. The pastor doesn't have to dress in a cool way and have, you know, the $5,000 sneakers and the watch. Well, he can do that. But it's not going to be eternal. Watch this. If you follow that, the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. Whew. Man, if you're the pastor, those are amazing words. Here's why. You don't have to do a dog and pony show every week. You don't have to create more events and better events so people keep coming and keep putting money in the box. All you just have to do is just follow this. Help 
people. You know that we are just helpers of your joy. That's what we're called to be, helpers of your joy. And if you'll stick to this, you're going to be joyful people, not fake joyful people, real joyful people. So when you look back and you go, why did he take me through Daniel 8 and the Christmas season? Here's why. Because what God says is going to happen will happen. And we've already seen much of what took place in Daniel chapter 8. We went through it ad nauseum. But there's something that hasn't happened, and that's Jesus coming again to set his judgment. If he had all of those things come to fruition, isn't he going to have this come to fruition? Yes, of course he is. And the other thing that it makes me do is it goes, wow, here's what I'm going to do. I don't have to guess. I don't have to think. I don't have to do anything be in prayer. I could be in prayer a million hours about what God wants me to do in my life because he just told me. If you don't know what to do, just be about the king's business. Just get up. You're confused. You don't know all these prophecies. Just get up and do what he asks. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here and we're thankful for your word. It's amazing. All these things have come to pass and still more to happen. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help to tell us what it is that is the king's business. But you already did. You told us right there in Acts 2.42. You told us right there in the end of Matthew. Lord, we're just going to glorify you Wherever we go, whatever we do, as we're going, make disciples and be about the king's business. Man, what a privilege it is, Lord, to be a part of your plan. Help us, fill us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody says, amen, amen.